0: The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. Glad you're able to be here. And uh, Daniel, thanks for that introduction. I'm I'm glad you exist too. I I woke up this morning and I, I thought, of the things I'm thankful for, I'm glad that my son exists, so. But it's good to see everybody. Uh, So Daniel just mentioned that for the past 26 years, I've been serving in pastoral ministry. And I have to tell you, and you could kind of tell by the degrees that I pursued while I was here, I wasn't actually intending to become a pastor when I was initially a student here. I thought I was going to be a history teacher. And uh, so I came here, got my Bible degree and my education degree, and partway through, it seemed to be that the Lord was orchestrating a whole bunch of things together for me to actually serve in pastoral ministry. So that was kind of exciting, but it was a very big transition from what I expected when I first started here and from what I expected when I was growing up. When I grew up, I grew up essentially in a grocery store, which sounds like a funny statement to make. I grew up in a grocery store, but it's true. My great-grandfather started Stongi's Market on East Mountain in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And then my grandfather, who is John Stongi Jr., took it over from him. And then my father, who is John the III., Took it over from him and I'm John the IV. And I didn't. So I'm <laughs> like I broke the chain just so I could be here with you guys today. So I hope that I hope that you appreciate that. But I do genuinely appreciate the fact that I had the opportunity to grow up in, in that grocery business. And one of the things, there's a variety of things that that I learned from that. I think one of the big things was how to work together with a team, how to develop a good work ethic, things of that nature. But I remember at a very young age, and see, this is one of the benefits of when you have a family business labor laws don't really get followed when you have a family business. They're probably supposed to be followed, but they don't really get followed. And so when I was five, I was working at my dad's store doing legitimate work. And then I remember when I was 10, they really started having me do a bunch of things, including stocking the shelves. Anyone ever stock shelves at a grocery store? All right, you are my people. I grew up doing that. And at the era that I was doing this, now keep this in mind, those of you that have stocked shelves and those of you who have purchased groceries, which would be probably all of us at this point, when you look at cans and how they're set up now, they're tapered at the bottom so they fit in the can underneath them, right? That's a logical thing. In my day, this is when I get to sound old, right? In my day, the cans didn't taper. And that was a problem. And so it made it tricky to balance them on top of one another. And I remember my dad coming up to me one day, I was 10 years old and he said, all right, Johnny, this is what I want you to do. And he handed me a duster, and he pointed to the the first aisle in the grocery store, and he said, I want you to condition all these shelves. And I asked him, I said, what does that mean? What does it mean to condition the shelves? He said, I want you to face them. And I was like, well, what does that mean to face them? He said, all right, what I want you to do is I want you to go through all of this this section here, all of, of aisle one, every one of these shelves, and I want you to dust every section of it, and I want you to arrange the cans so that they're stacked nicely on top of each other. Mind you, they don't taper at this era of history. And I was like, okay. And he said, I want them all facing forward, and I want them right at the edge of the shelf. And I said, okay, I can do that. And he said, oh, by the way, if I find more than 10 mistakes in this aisle in one hour when I check it, I'm docking you the entire hour of pay. Hey, that's it. Don't don't feel bad for me. It's okay. He only paid me a dollar an hour at that point, so it wasn't really a life-changing money. But what he was trying to do is he was trying to enforce a lesson like, Hey, take it seriously. Don't goof around. I want you to do a good job. If you don't do a good job, you're not getting paid for the hour. And so I was like, Oh, okay, this seems easy. And so I start stocking the shelves, or uh, facing the shelves, conditioning them. And I'm I'm moving the, the cans and trying to get them all where I want them to be. And I'm looking at it, and it looks pretty good. But then I'm also noticing a problem. One of the problems I'm noticing is that people are shopping there while I'm trying to do this. And so they're undoing some of the things that I'm doing. And so I'm coming back and redoing some of those things and working my way down. And I'm thinking, this hour is going quickly. I'm losing time. And I, I finally got to the end of this, the, the aisle by the end of the hour. And I said, all right, Dad, I'm done. I'm ready for you to check. He's like, you sure? And I was like, I'm ready. And he's like, all right, here we go. And he goes to the front of the aisle. And he starts looking and he notices one can that's not facing forward. He's like, That's one. And mind you, he told me ten, ten mistakes, and I lose the hours pay. And he's like, All right, let's look through another one here. That's not up at the edge. That's two, three. And he's working his way through the aisle. Four, five, six. At this point, I've given up hope. I'm like, you're, you're not, you're at six, and we're not even halfway down the aisle. But then apparently, I got better as it went along. And he's like, Okay, seven eight and then he got up to nine at the end and then he stopped there and he's like nine not bad for your first try he's like all right you did you did well now do the rest of the store (laughs) and and i thought okay but now here's the thing and it wouldn't surprise any of you when i was a child i i basically idolized my father and my grandfather and everything i saw them doing in that store i wanted to do and i wanted to do it well And I basically, at that point, I think if you asked me, how do you get your father's approval? I would have told you, you get your father's approval by doing a good job. That's how you get your father's approval. You do a good job. And I've noticed that that's something that's kind of translated into a lot of my thinking spiritually and even in my own parenting. I try and be a good dad, but I have to tell you, there's some deficiencies in my parenting, now, I'm admitting this now that my children are adults. I didn't want them to know this as they were growing up. But one of the things that I've noticed about myself that I think could be a good thing and a bad thing, one of the things that I tried to instill, and my wife and I together tried to instill um, in our children is a good work ethic. This idea of a good work ethic. We wanted them to be hard workers who you know just followed a good work ethic. We thought that would be a good thing, and that certainly is a good thing. And to their credit, all four of them, excellent workers, hard workers, people that do a good job, And so we modeled that for them. I tried to model that for them. But one of the things that I have not excelled at modeling for them that has been a lifelong lesson that I've really been trying to wrestle with and really trying to learn is, yes, you can model what it looks like to work hard, but what does it look like to rest? What does it look like to rest? And I have to tell you that sometimes I I look at that concept and I think, I don't know. Do you ever find yourself, if your personality is wired like mine, do you ever find yourself in a spot where you're saying, I know how to work but I actually don't know how to rest? Do you ever try and take a day off and you're like, I don't know what to do with this day? And you just invent other projects to try and fill up the time because you're like, I don't know, I guess I just do something different. It's like, what would it look like if you just sat? I have no idea, I've never done that, right? I remember when I was a student here, I was a junior here and I was in my dorm, and uh, I knew at that point I was going to be in pastoral ministry. And I thought to myself, all right, I want to be prepared for any question that anyone would ask me. And I want to go through every book of the Bible on my own, trying to figure out every last detail of theology and every piece of content. And I thought, all right, I don't know a lot about the book of Hebrews yet. I want to learn about the book of Hebrews. So i read reading the book of Hebrews in my dorm and really try, trying to dig into the content, the content of the book. And it kept talking about rest. And I was like, this subject keeps coming up. This concept of rest And it's not something I excel at understanding. And Daniel just read a portion of this to us, but I'm going to read a little bit more from Hebrews chapter 4, if you don't mind. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there with me. But in Hebrews chapter 4, starting at the first verse of that chapter, it says this. And this is the the Lord speaking through the writer of Hebrews, uh, describing things related to Israel during the time of the Exodus and their journey toward the promised land. And it says in verse 1 of Hebrews 4, it says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, now notice that phrase, entering his rest. How many of us ever use that phrase? I want to enter into rest. Do you ever say that? You might say, I take a rest. You might say, I need some rest. But how many of us ever say, I need to enter into rest? And I remember getting to that and being like, what does that mean? Why is it said that way? I need to enter into rest. But anyway, it says, therefore, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So then there's a cautionary word here. Like, "Let us, let us fear. So I'm supposed to have reverent respect for the Lord in the midst of this concept of rest so that I don't fail to reach this? I'm like, I think I'm failing big time because I don't even understand what it's talking about. Enter his rest. So I kept reading. It says, for good news came to us just as to them. So it's speaking of ancient Israel. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It sounds like it's getting very serious, doesn't it? It says, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and this is from Genesis 2, but it says, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. And then look at verse 6. It says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, and this is a quote from Psalm 95, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest must, has also rested, from his works, as God did, from his. So you look at this portion of scripture, and you can see a variety of things that are referenced here. You have the writer of Hebrews basically giving us a history lesson of some of the things that the Lord has demonstrated to people all throughout the course of history. And one of the things is he's referencing from Genesis two. He's pointing to the seventh day. On the seventh day. God rested. So you have the Lord's work of creation as He's speaking creation into existence and then fashioning the things that He's spoken into existence into the form that He wants them to be in. And then on the seventh day, He rested. And He gives us a pattern that's meant to illustrate a deeper spiritual reality that you and I are supposed to be enjoying right here and now, whether we feel like we have a good idea of what rest actually means yet or not. It's something that's being offered to us so that we can enjoy it in the present as a foretaste of what our eternal reality is going to be like. But you have that that initial discussion of this in Genesis 2, where the Lord reveals that he rested. And then the writer of Hebrews also quotes David from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So it's like, how does that connect with this concept of rest? How does hardening a heart connect with the concept of rest? Well, the scripture here in Hebrews has been talking about the experience that the people of Israel had. And throughout the course of... Their lives, ancient Israel, as they were being led from Egypt toward the promised land, they were given an opportunity to experience things about God that many people have not experienced. They watched the Lord deliver them in miraculous ways from the hands of their oppressors. They watched as the Lord was providing for them day in and day out. Food would just fall from the sky. You ever be so hungry that you just wish food would fall from the sky? That is me 90% of the time. 90% of the time. And there they are. Food just falls from the sky. And it's like, all right, the Lord provides for them that way. And the Lord says, hey, I've got a wonderful land marked out for you. This is going to be your land. This is the promised land. And you can go there and you can experience rest and you can be provided for. Just go in it and take it. Just go in and take it. Days after, days after they've been released from Egypt on their journey. And they look at it and they say, you know what? Even though the Lord told us to go in and take that land, I don't think we can take it. The people there seem scary. I don't know. And they're doubting the Lord's power. And so instead of being able to enter into that promised land within days of having left Egypt, they wander for years. They wander for 40 years. And why does that generation wander? They wander because their hearts are hard. So what does it look like when a heart is hard? When a heart is hard, that's basically when the Lord tells us, hey, I've got something wonderful planned out for you. Follow the path, follow the direction that I'm leading you, and trust in my power in the midst of everything that I'm leading you toward. And we look at that and we're like, you know what? That sounds wonderful, Lord, but you know what I'm going to trust instead? My eyes and my experiences. I'm not going to trust your wisdom. I'm not going to trust your power. I'm just going to go through day-to-day life as someone who trusts me. And we harden our hearts against God. And God looks at us and he says, hey, I'll give you rest. I'll give you peace that passes all understanding through my son, Jesus Christ. You trust me through him. You'll have that. You'll have it now, and you'll have it forever. And what does humanity do? We harden our hearts, just like the people of Israel did on that journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. So they end up wandering for 40 years because they hardened their hearts. And I think so much time in our lives gets spent wandering because we just harden our hearts against God, and we don't want to listen. And he directs us, and he speaks to us through his word, and he speaks to us through godly counsel that he places in our lives. His spirit speaking directly to our hearts at times. And he gives us his counsel, and he gives us his direction. He says, go in the direction I'm priding you to go. And we harden our hearts. And then we wonder why we're stressed. And then we wonder why we're anxious. And then we wonder why we worry. And we say, Lord, can you fix this? And yet at the same time, what do we do? We keep going in our own direction, following our own counsel, listening to our own advice, and ignoring what he's revealed to us, and we harden our hearts. And you look at that and you think, all right, when am I ever going to find rest? And I imagine from God's perspective, he looks at us and he says, when are you ever going to listen? When are you ever going to listen? One of the things that, um, that I have found very challenging because of my own personality, but also because of my role as a local church pastor, again, is finding rest. And I'm curious, how many of you have the desire to serve in full-time vocational ministry once your time at Cairn here is complete? So a a decent amount of you. Can I tell you one of the most annoying things you will experience when you step into that role? I'm just going to shoot straight with you, right? Most people in vocational ministry, pastors in particular, like to take Mondays off because you're usually a little fried. It's kind of a worthless day for you in many respects. And so I try and take Mondays off. And what I like to do is I like to just work in my lawn on Mondays. This summer was brutal to lawns, all right? And I've been trying to restore my lawn. And I like working in the lawn on Mondays because it helps me not to think about some of the things that typically stress me out. The lawn never has personal problems, right? It dries out. Sometimes I have to reseed it. Sometimes I have to mow it because it's growing too quickly. Other times I just have to blow some leaves out of it. But it doesn't have personal problems, doesn't argue back either, you know? And, um, and it really doesn't stress me out. It is, it is a delight to work with that lawn. And uh, on Mondays, I try my best to ignore the rest of the world and just work on that lawn or something, some task that's similar. But you know what happens on Monday? I think people have this thought in their mind. Hey, it's the start of the week. What do I have on my list? What do I want to do during the course of the week that I need to get done? Oh, I know what I need to do. Bother the pastor on his day off. That's what I need to bother him about. All my emotional problems, all my marital problems, all my health problems. I get grossed out when people tell me surgery stories. They always tell me. Please stop telling me, right? I don't want to know. I will pray for you, but I don't want to know anything about what they cut out of you or put into you. Don't want to know. Don't want to know. Also, don't show me your scars. Why does everybody feel like they need to show me their scars? I don't like that either. Regardless, that vent was helpful to me because you had very friendly faces as I said it. But this is what happens. I get a million messages on Monday that say this, hey, I know it's your day off, but hey, I know it's your day off, but... And it's like, no, you're the butt. You're the butt right now. (laughs) Stop being a butt and bothering me on my day off. And at the end of the day, this is what I do. I've gotten actually good at ignoring texts and calls on Monday because I'm like, no, this is lawn care day. I don't wanna think about this stuff. I don't wanna even talk about this stuff. I actually do care about people. I know it doesn't sound like I do right (laughs) now, but on Mondays, I try not to. I try and take a break from it. I just wanna care for the lawn. That's all I wanna do on Monday. And at the end of the day, I go to my wife and I say, all right, here's the list of how many people I had to ignore today. And she's like, ooh, eight. That was a busy one. I'm like, yeah, I ignored them all. And we'll like high five, and I'll get back to all of them on Tuesday. And I try and ignore them on Monday. But you know what happens? They get in my mind, and now I'm thinking about it all day, and I find it hard to rest. And then I think about this concept that Scripture talks about, and I remember being in my dorm here looking at this idea of entering into his rest. And I'm like, I don't speak that way, and not too many people that I know speak that way, so I don't feel like I understand what this means. And I remember sitting in my dorm at my desk staring at this and just thinking so much about it. I was like, why is it phrased that way? Well, think about the the comparison or the contrast that it's trying to make. It's speaking of the people of Israel as they're leaving Egypt, and they refuse to enter into the promised land because they won't believe what God has told them. They're doubting God's promises. They won't enter in, so they don't find peace. What what happens to that generation? They all die in the wilderness. It's like, welcome to the rest of your life. You harden your heart against God, so you get to wander in the wilderness for the rest of your life. And it's your children that will get to experience this blessing, but not you. You're all going to die, except for two guys. There were two guys in that initial generation that got to enter into the promised land Joshua and Caleb. And why? Because they're the ones that believed. They're like, no, we could take this land. And they got to enter into that rest. And I would suspect that in their own hearts, they got to enter into that rest a little bit earlier than when they actually physically set foot on that ground. And I look at this and I'm like, okay, now I'm starting to get it. So the idea is that I would enter into a state of living or a state of faith or just a state of life where I can look at the Lord and say, Lord, you are sufficient. I can trust you for what I need. I don't need to go through life trusting in myself and ignoring your voice. I can literally trust you in the midst of every circumstance and experience the peace that you offer through your son, Jesus Christ. And the Lord is basically inviting us to try that, to see what it's like, to experience what it actually feels like to go through life recognizing that his rest is available to us. But here's the thing. So many of us struggle to accept that because this is how we think God God approves of us. We think that there's a checklist that we have to meet and a list of things that we need to do in order for God to approve of us on a day-to-day basis or for God to look at us and say, you're welcome into my family, you're welcome into my kingdom. And I think most of us would look at others if we were preaching the gospel to them We would be very clear as an evangelical Bible teaching institution here. And we would say, all right, you don't have to earn the favor of God. You don't have to earn grace. You don't have to earn the blessings of God. God gives you unmerited favor. It's undeserved. It's something that Christ accomplished for you. The work that needed to be done, Christ did for you so that you could trust in him and receive the benefit and blessing of that. And that's how the gift of salvation is received, as you trust in Jesus who atoned for your sin, who lived the perfect life, for you because you couldn't live it, who died on the cross to pay for your sin, who defeated sin, Satan, and death when he rose from the grave, and he shares that victory with you if you just trust in him. And we would preach that, we would say that, and then it's not what we end up preaching to our own hearts once we come to know Christ. You know, what? one of the weirdest things that Christians struggle with, when we're dealing with this whole idea of sharing the gospel with other people, we're very clear in saying you don't have to earn the love of God. But then we go and live the rest of our lives like we have to earn the love of God. We receive the gift of salvation, but then we preach this message to our heart that the love of God is conditional based on what I do or don't do. The list that I keep or the list that I don't keep. And we forget the fact that the righteousness of Christ was imputed to our accounts and that when the Father looks at you and me, who is he seeing? He's seeing Jesus Christ. He's seeing his Son. So if the father is looking at me and he sees his son, is there some sort of checklist I need to meet on a daily basis to try and earn his approval today because I might lose his approval tomorrow? Can you imagine how destructive that would be to go through our lives living like that? And yet many of us do that, and I've done that. Where we treat the approval of God like it's a checklist I have to keep based on things that I do. Instead of finding rest, instead of entering into the rest, of trusting what Jesus already did for me. So it's like I preach a message of, 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 uh, I preach the gospel to those who don't know it, and I'm saying you don't have to earn the love of God. You don't have to earn the favor of God. Just simply trust in Jesus Christ and receive that as a gift, and then my day-to-day life, what do I end up doing? I treat my relationship with God like it's something I have to earn or something that I have to deserve, and then I wonder why I struggle with anxiety it's like the reason you're anxious is because you're hardening your heart and you're not listening when the Lord says, I'm offering you my rest and you can enter into it. You walk right into it and and experience it through the rest of your life. I'm looking, you know, I used to have a whole bunch of goals and ambitions and I think I still do for things related to my time here on this earth. I'm a list maker like I already confessed. But one of the things that I take a lot of joy in when I read through the Scriptures is that it reminds me not to stay overly focused on my day-to-day earthly life. And it reminds me of the fact that the Lord has some amazing things in store for us. And just as the people of Israel were told about this promised land that one day they would have the opportunity to enter into, Scripture speaks of the fact that there's going to be a day when Christ is going to restore all things. And He looks at you and He looks at me and He invites us to be part of that restoration. He invites us to be in the midst of that with Him forever. And that's the ultimate fulfillment of this whole concept of rest, isn't it? The fact that there's going to be a day when all things are going to be restored, when everything's going to be made right, when everything's going to be perfect. There's not going to be any more conflict. There's not going to be any more sin. Scripture tells us there's no more pain. There's no more sorrow. All that stuff's gone away. Everything's just as the Lord originally intended. And that's something that you and I have the opportunity to look forward to. And what's the Lord telling us in a portion of Scripture like we just read from Hebrews 4? He's saying, yeah, that ultimate ultimate reality is coming. That day is coming. But here's the thing. You can taste it right now if you want. You don't have to wait till the ultimate reality for you to get a taste of it. You can taste it right now. So you and I can spend our lives basically just trying our best to keep lists and trying our best to earn favor and then experiencing the anxiety that comes with that Or we could look at the Lord and say, Lord, you've already done for me through your Son, Jesus Christ, all the things I couldn't do for myself. And you're offering me the opportunity any day that's called today, right? That's how it's phrased there. It says today if you hear his voice. So any day that's called today. So on a Monday, I can enter into your rest. I can experience the peace that you offer through your Son, Jesus Christ, on a Monday content in who you are and what you do in my life because I'm listening to your voice instead of hardening my heart against you. And on a Tuesday, I can experience it then as well. And in the midst of seasons where I feel abnormally stressed because I've got so much going on, I can still look forward to the fact that you're going to restore all things and I could say, all right, I can taste that rest right now because I know it's coming because I believe what you say and I take it at your word. The Lord wants us to experience those things right now. It's a foretaste of our heavenly reality. It's a foretaste of our eternity through Jesus Christ. And again, many believers spend the course of their lives never understanding that. And looking at a phrase like I just referenced from Hebrews 4, this concept of entering into the rest of God and saying, that sounds foreign to me. And as a result, I think I'm just going to ignore it and maybe not even think about it. But I want to say to us, in the midst of whatever you're going through, there's obviously the stresses of going through day to day life, going through your college education. It's one of the most stressful times of your life, believe it or not. But there'll be other seasons of your life that are going to involve some stress. And here's the thing whatever you're going through, what's the Lord inviting us to do? One of the marks of maturity, one of the big lessons that the Lord's trying to teach you and me throughout the course of our lives is to just simply trust Him. Just trust Him. If you trust him and you take him at his word and you listen to his direction, just going in the direction he calls you to go, laying your burdens down at his feet, inviting him to guide, direct, and counsel you, inviting him to guide and direct and counsel your life, and just trusting in him to be sufficient in the midst of everything you're going through. One of the things that we have the privilege to experience is that rest right now. So if you're like me and if you're someone who, who struggles to rest, I just want to encourage you like it says in hebrews 4 enter into his rest enter into it every day that's called today let's pray lord thank you so much for the privilege to be able to look at your word together and to just think about the things that you reveal to us in it lord we know that you are present with us. We know, Lord, that you love us. We know, Lord, that you're guiding and directing us and that you're offering us the opportunity to be men and women who put you first in all areas. We also know that you've given us the experience or the opportunity to observe the experience of those that have come before us. And we see the people of Israel during the time of the Exodus and many of them hardened their hearts against you. So they didn't enter into your rest. Lord, I pray for those of us gathered here that that would not be our story, that that would not be the way that our lives could ultimately be characterized. I don't want to be one of those people who ignores your voice and and fails to enter into your rest because I'm so consumed with myself. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for what's been accomplished on our behalf through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the grace that you bestow upon us and for the opportunity you give us to walk with you day in and day out. Thank you, Lord, for the people who model what it means to actually enter into that rest, where they they show us what it means to trust in you through your son, Jesus Christ, every day in every circumstance. And Lord, I just pray for those of us gathered here, whatever's stressing us out, whatever's on our heart, whatever has the capacity to provoke anxiety from us, that we would just bring it before your throne, that we'd lay it down at your feet, and that we would spend today and ultimately the rest of our days experiencing the rest that is ours through your son Jesus Christ to accomplish the work that needed to be accomplished on our behalf. We love you Lord and we thank you for all these things. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you.